Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. As we close out 2021 on the calendar, we wanted to offer a topic that's both interesting and supportive of year-end introspection and thought-provoking as many of us step away from work over the holiday. And in fact, we are going to step away from this podcast until 2022, January 2022, that is. So today we're talking about the difference between scarcity and abundance. It's kind of a deluge being a human in the information age. There's this realization that abundance may actually turn out to be less, less stuff, fewer choices, fewer ideas and possibilities. And what is overabundance? And why does overabundance weirdly make us behave like everything is scarce and we don't have exactly what we need? It's a really strange hamster wheel we're on, perfect for our hyped up, plugged in, global human information age experience. So to help us explore the concept, our conversation today includes Amber Gentry, who's a nutritional psychologist. Many of you know her already. I think you'll see how this clearly complements the discussion. And if you haven't read Amber's piece on scarcity and abundance from earlier this year, please reach out and we'll get it to you. I hope you enjoy it. I want to get under the surface and, and explore a little bit the scarcity an abundance um, orientation, which in some parts of society is almost cliche. I want to drop down under it because going around saying it's about scarcity and abundance without knowing what the heck we're talking about isn't very, isn't very useful. So that's kind of why we're here in the piece that we re- recently wrote with Amber. And I wanted to say first how I met Amber, how she started working with me. I describe her as a, as a um, nutritional psychologist. And quickly that resonated with me because I've found so much benefit from including psychology and understanding my mind in all sorts of different activities. And so I didn't want a nutritionist that would tell me about X amount of riboflavin and stuff like that. I wasn't interested in information. I didn't know where it was going. But early on, I described to her, shared openly that like last night, Kelly and I went out and we had like a whole pizza and we probably had too many beers. (laughs) because <laughs> uh, I wanted to see so it instantly became a confessional <laughs> it was sort of a confessional like yes Amber's got a way about her that brings out this you know openness vulnerability and I th- and then I still remember she said something and we didn't know each other that well yet she said that must have been a sensational celebration and I was like I wasn't thinking she'd say that I was thinking she might tell me about I should have had some greens with a pizza and maybe small pizza and, you know, don't put meats on it. Or like sometimes we have too many beers. Maybe you could have some water. I was expecting that. It was none of that. It was just like, that must have been a great celebration. I'm like, okay. Now, like a year later, my refrigerator, I now call the refrigerator of dreams because (laughs) I stock it. Literally, (laughs) I stock it once a week, like Saturdays or Sundays with all all that take time to fix all this stuff. Like I boil up edamame and I make sure I have spinach and I'm eating greens at three meals a day. An idea she did plant in my head, but without any type of force early on, like, 
what if you had green stuff at every meal? And I'm like, that's, that's just stupid. Like, that's not living. I'm like, I want to get my favorite foods in as much as I can. It's almost like uh, a bucket list lived out every day of my favorite foods. And damn it, if my day isn't filled with those favorite foods, it's, I'm doing life wrong. And then like a year later, I have a field of the refrigerator of dreams with all these mix-ins and I'm having fun and I'm learning about smoked paprika. And I never thought I'd be in this place, Brent. And, and I, blame, <laughs> I blame Amber and her, her abundance mindset for getting me there somehow. Um, I wanted to bridge it over. I knew there was something there and I wanted to bridge it over to investment work because it just didn't make any sense that abundant scarcity as I'm starting to understand at a deeper level was just gonna help people with like nutrition. So a few weeks ago, I was thinking about what I think was my worst investment ever. And it, it was early in my career, and I was really locked into this, this company, General Instruments. They made set-top boxes. Mm -hmm. And the company was trying to, um, uh, basically, they were trying to uh, shove a bunch of stock into some unsuspecting hands. I was sadly one of those unsuspecting hands. And so I'm doing all this work, et cetera. And they had teed this up and you know, it had backing from I think Goldman or something. I'm teeing it up and I'm getting to know them and all. And now they're gonna come into our office and I'm, I've already done a good job of selling change, which did eventually happen, you know, selling this change to the other people in our, our company, you know, so that they'd buy in, et cetera. So we have this meeting with management and like 13 people in the room. And I knew the problem was like, there was a math problem because I had like 18 questions. Here's the management and there's 13 other people. Let, let's even, okay, wait, even if they weren't in the room, 18 questions in like 55 minutes was gonna be a challenge. And I was immediately <laughs> tense because I knew the other people would, might ask a question and my math didn't work for for me even with 18 questions in 55 minutes, but I ignored that. And I was just like, oh, we can't have introductions. Like I was, I was like, oh. and, and I'm just, and so all these senior people show up in the meeting and they're very interested in all that type of stuff. And my boss, Dennis, who's a fabulous thinker, he asked some question about regulatory in, in Washington about something. And the CEO went for like 20 minutes. Oh man. Now today I would have gone, big signal, light bulb, this guy does not want to answer my questions. He's, he's so happy not to sell me on the greatness of his stock and his story, but to interface with my boss about something that really had nothing to do with the investment. And you could imagine me getting tighter and tighter and tighter because the math is getting worse and worse and worse that I think I got- Time is getting scarce, more and more scarce. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting tense and- and I, I left the meeting and I tried to pretend like I was in the CFO goes, hey, if you have anything you want to follow up on, you can reach me anytime. I was like, I have 15 questions that's going through my mind that didn't get answered. And we never followed up. And a few months later, and my boss, Dennis, like led the CEO, he, Dennis was thrilled, led the CEO out to the elevator. I remember it so well. And, and we bought tons, everyone was happy. And then it blew up like two months later. The, the reality is they were dumping this stuff and it would one day happen, but there was a lot of bad news that was coming. And here I'm at this analyst day where they break this news like two months later in Chicago. And I was finally like, I'm the idiot. But I didn't really, really, really figure out I was the idiot until dinner where the CEO said, well, you know, we had to reset things and but we feel really good about things. And, you know, we had, we had to tell you this. 
And he looked and he turned to the CFO. It was only a dinner of like 30 of us, the biggest fools. He looked to the CFO and he said, well, Rich, we, we did have to tell him, didn't we? With like a wink, wink in his eye. And I was freaking livid. Hmm. I had been played for a total chump. If I was in an abundance mindset, I wouldn't have needed the 18 questions. I would have taken so much signal in from this conversation of Dennis and the CEO and just gone, hmm, he's here. He doesn't want to talk about his company. Wait, before, before you go further, I think a tendency would be to say you had an abundance of questions, Pip. Like what, tell me, <laughs> what, the, what is the difference of the abundance mindset in these two ways? You had an abundance of, from a research analyst perspective, you did your work. You had an abundance of thought, mm. questions, et cetera. And I, um, I'd like you to answer and then maybe... Amber, you can rip off that as well, because we would love to hear more about that. Um, I know you've thinking, been thinking a lot about like what gets in the way of abundant thinking and just having a more abundant life and perspective and mindset. So Pip, you first, what do you mean by abundant mindset helping you um, if you had had that in a, in a different way? I was really excited about this investment. And I thought I was just being really excited but somewhere in there, I was being thorough and I started to miss the forest from the trees. Mm. One of my bosses, Ed, shortly after this said, I want your write-ups to be one page long, no more. He said, you can have all the appendixes you want, but one page. And what he was aiming to help me see is that I could get lost in my thoroughness, in my research, in my questions, all of this stuff. I could get totally lost in thinking I was being thorough. And usually a great investment has maybe a 125 word description to it, or in some cases, Google, we got it down to 25 words. So I started thinking not from a generative mindset, which I now think of abundance as generative, but I was operating from an extraction, there is, which I think of as uh, scarcity. There's so much information, I'm gonna go and extract it, pull it out with my 18 questions, then I'll be satisfied and we'll be good to go. Like almost a checklist orientation, as opposed to being present. I was completely not present in that meeting I just got. As opposed to being present and listening that everything is there and I can pull out signal. I was scared and I thought I had to have these 18 questions or most of them answered to be doing my job correctly. So it's interesting because it sounds like abundance does not always look like a lot. I think when one of the confusions of abundance and scarcity in the cliche today, Amber, and I bet you work with lots of people on this, abundance is confused with lots of stuff. Meaning I have all this data feed from Bloomberg. That actually has made it, our jobs worse or it's earning season. I have to be on 20 different conference calls with whatever. When previously conference calls never even existed in 1993, there were no analyst conference calls after the quarter. So we get this gift from God that could be signal. We could use it. And instead we turn it to like, you know, 
damage ourselves, put us in prison. So we wind up hating our jobs as opposed to there's the signal and having the confidence with more signal, I can pull things out. I can generate, oh, thank you, Bloomberg, that's nice. But I don't become tortured by Bloomberg or tortured by the quarterly earnings assessments or tortured by these things. They're nice little add-on signals that I can draw from. So I see how much this relates to my profession as a health coach, or like you said, as a nutritional psychiatrist, psychologist, um, because food and hunger is so primal. And so to see the way people operate around food and their hunger really speaks to how they're operating in the bigger things in life. Um, so if you see people always feeling like they need more, or they have to get something immediately, that really reflects their outlook on the world. Um, and so what you're describing with this meeting and this horrible investment situation is that you thought you had what you needed and that was the questions and this one hour and the people who were there, you could ask. And so those were the things you thought you needed, but what you didn't have was enough time. You didn't have enough insight, but the truth was you did have everything that you needed. And that's what abundance means in my mind is that you have everything you need. It's available to you, um, but your eyes weren't open to see it. You were thinking, these are the things that I need and I don't have enough. And so in my mind, scarcity is there's not enough and abundance is you have everything you need. You just need to be able to be aware of the things that are available to you that can help answer these cravings, these wants, these desires. Um, because a lot of the time, when we're craving, when we're confused, when things are scarce, when, we, when we're thinking, I don't have enough, we end up choosing things that A, we don't really want, and B, are not really good for us. And so um, that is on every level, I feel like, of decision-making. As you were talking, I was thinking about how sometimes I've also heard benefits of a scarcity mindset in certain ways, just in terms of putting limits around something like John Cleese will talk about constraints of time and place to help you be creative, right? You kind of, you put, you put yourself in a little box, give yourself just a few resources, kind of like the desert Island thing. Like, okay, you have, you know, a piece of twine, a mirror and this, and what are you going to do? And so it's this interesting play. They're not necessarily on the same spectrum either. You can have, you can have an abundance mindset while living within constraints, right? Yeah. Sometimes that can, that is the thing that has those two things work together and explode with creativity. That's beautiful. I completely agree. And I see that, um, for example, uh, typically my clients do cleanses a couple mm. of times a year. And what happens when they do cleanses is that they're only allowed to eat a certain thing for a certain amount of time. And then they can eat more things after in a certain amount of time. So the world opens up to them in a such bigger way because they're able to eat all the vegetables, all the fruits after not being able to eat anything for like two days and mm -hmm. other than like a, a certain powder, a drink or a juice or whatever. And so what they see is how abundant those food groups really are where before they're like, I don't know what to eat. What do you, what, you want me to eat salads all the time? I'm gonna be roasting broccoli, this is boring. But <laughs> once they see the abundance that is available to them, like you said, like in that box, um, there really is so much more, but if we have, if we're looking at everything, 
we're like, okay, we have the Doritos over here and we have the, um, you know, the hamburger over here. And then we have the salad instead of thinking, oh, wow, we can have roast potatoes. We can have the uh, butternut squash. It just opens it up for you when you actually put yourself in a smaller category. I totally agree. I, I was thinking, Bryn, that in those putting limits is not a form of generating scarcity. Mm. It's wisdom based. It's a design yeah. principle to restrict. Um, when mm-hmm. when I coach soccer, it's like boundaries. It's boundaries, and I think and the- those are wisdom based. Scarcity is always fear based. So the design principle of limits gets us confused as humans. Like, oh, I'm making something scarce. There are scarce, but here we're designing limits to generate an experience of like in soccer, you limit the space that little kids work in. So they have to make decisions Mm. so that they learn to become better soccer players. It's still generative. We get confused in those, you know, what is a limit versus scarcity? No, that's not punitive at all. It's wisdom-based. That's why we have laws in society to give us bounds. Otherwise we'd just go like run totally amok. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, um, not to make this all about nutrition, or, but to make some of it about nutrition. Amber, you see some things, and two questions, pick your path. You see some things that when you go to the grocery store kind of sound so scarce, even though they look like they're abundant, like the 49 types of Doritos, et cetera, that you can buy now, like, oh, but they really need that 50th. Or can you tell me what the heck were you doing when you were telling me like, oh, pizza and too much beer. It sounds like a great celebration. What the heck were you doing? How's that tie into this story? (laughs) So I think that um, scarcity is sometimes born out of guilt and shame and also fear. But I see it all with food. The scarcity mindset is born out of guilt and shame. And so, and it almost feels like a bit of rebellion uh, where people are like, oh, I'm just, you know, forget it. I had a long day. I'm just going to order Thai food. And so what I've found is to like really bring compassion into that moment with people to help them to see what they were really wanting um, helps them to then identify, this is what I really wanted. Like the celebrate, the beer and the pizza, what you really wanted was to celebrate with the people who were around you, who you were loving, who you loved. And so once you identify the actual desire, then you can fulfill it. Um, Where sometimes we think, for example, Doritos. <laughs> They're basically mouth entertainment. Um, they have zero nutritional value. And so if you're craving Doritos in the afternoon, really what you're wanting is entertainment. Um, or really, if you're craving salt, you're really thirsty. But you don't know that unless you take a moment to be mindful and think, what am I really wanting? Where scarcity says, oh my gosh, I need to pick me up. You know, like I need that another cup of coffee. I, I'm not going to have enough energy. Instead of seeing actually what I need is to check in with my autonomic nervous system and turn off my fight and flight response, turn on my rest and digest, take five minutes to meditate, and then I'm going to be able to be more creative, more um, intuitive the rest of the day. Does that answer your question? Is there more? I would like you to slow down on two things. One was that response that you just (laughs) rattled through, which was totally profound to me because I've never done anything like that in my life (laughs) where I was that conscious to say, oh, let me check in. I'm feeling tired. What, how do I respond to that? My scarcity mindset would say, well, I can't lie down right now. So keep pushing, Bryn, just keep going. 
do whatever it is. Um, I, so I want you to please repeat what that routine was that sounds rejuvenating. I've, that's not in my, uh, my wheelhouse toolkit yet. Um, and then the other thing was um, mouth entertainment. Can we talk about what that is? <laughs> I just feel like that's a need to know for everyone listening what mouth entertainment is. Yes. Okay, so mouth entertainment, a good example is soda. It's sparkly, like it's exciting for your tongue to taste. It's full of sugar. Um, it's entertaining. So often we're bored during the day while we're working and food is a solution to boredom. But if we're not realizing, oh, I'm bored, I need to be stimulated in some way, maybe I should go for a walk because um, that'd be really stimulating and really um, energizing. We think, oh, I'll have a Coke because that's stimulating and energizing, but it's not actually a thing we need. Um, we really need to breathe. We really need to put our eyes in the sun because our eyes are part of our nervous system. And when we look into the sun, then it de-stresses us, which is incredible. And so, which brings me um, to your question about this process of checking in with yourself and really knowing what you need and how to relax. I find that this happens a lot for people in the early afternoon. And what people don't realize is that we operate on a cortisol curve every day. And cortisol is our hormone that produces energy in our body. So in the morning we have the, we're producing the most cortisol and then it's really higher on lunch and then it goes down at two or three in the afternoon. And so that's why everyone at two or three in the afternoon is like, oh my gosh, I gotta get a cup of coffee because naturally our bodies are producing less cortisol. And so what we do is we mess with the cortisol curve. We say, oh, my body doesn't know what it's doing. It's 3 p.m. I need to get done 200 emails. So I'm going to pound two cups of coffee because I can't rest right now. Well, really, your body needs rest. And so um, what happens is you have two uh, parts of your nervous system. It's your parasympathetic and your sympathetic. Your sympathetic nervous system is your fight and flight. That was evolutionary design for you to be able to like run from a tiger. Where now we're not running from tigers anymore. And instead we get like an email from our boss or from a client that puts us in a high stress mode and produces more cortisol. Or the parasympathetic nervous system is our rest and digest. Um, and that's what enables us, and that is activated by breathing. Um, loud singing is activated <laughs> the parasympathetic nervous system, which is super fun. We get into that in an office place. Um, <laughs> And basically that enables your body to rest. It actually turns off your fight and flight response. And as we know, almost 60% of disease is caused by this constant level of cortisol, mm. the stress is what we call it, right? Anxiety. Um, so the way you turn off this fight and flight response and turn on your uh, rest and digest is to breathe, is to meditate. And it literally will take you one minute, maybe five minutes and you switch off your stress response and you turn on your rest response. And when you're in a state of rest, then you can be creative, you can be intuitive, um, you can be compassionate to yourself, you can um, see things more clearly. Because if you're constantly running from a tiger, then you're only seeing what's ahead of you. You're only trying to escape something or to accomplish something very narrow. Um, instead of being able to be like, okay, I'm sitting here on a beach. What is everything available to me? That's activating your parasympathetic nervous system. I love that thinking about abundance, all that it really means is an orientation that we have everything we need here. It's like a little puzzle to figure out, you know. Right. It can, it can be joyful or at least it could just be present. Well, I'm mm -hmm. thinking of, you know, for example, in an investment meeting, 
that stance of we have everything we need right now, that, that would be unusual, right? It's usually like, what do we need? What else do we need to know? What else do we need to know? But again, if we could put a wise limit just for a meeting or just for a portion of a meeting around, let's pretend we have everything we need to know. How would the, you know, pause, what do, what is that? What do we have here already around the table that mm. is insightful, that is, you know, supporting or not supporting our thesis? Start from there. And then there's always time for the follow-ups. Well, I remember one that just popped to my brain was our friend Jags, who was having a meeting with a CEO of a major oil company. And, you know, sometimes we prepare, we got to be prepared. Yeah? And Jags prepares, but he walked in and like, out of his mind came a question that he had not prepared that was if for some reason I had to take over and run your company in three weeks time, what would you have to teach me? And unto itself, that question was a partnership question. And so often in, I think in scarcity, Amber, one of the modes of scarcity is it's us versus them. Mm, yeah. It's not, we're in this together, for instance. And if you look at just, we're in this together versus us and them, all these resources become available. And yeah. so literally he said, Jack said, it just came to my mind. He said, within five minutes, we were sitting next to each other, not across the table. It was no longer an interrogation. Mm. You were sitting next to each other and the CEO was drawing pictures of this is what you, I'd need to teach you. And Jags was asking, so you mean da, 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 da? And he was going, no, not exactly. And, and they're collaborating. Mm -hmm. Imagine investors, public market investors, getting into a position of collaboration right. as one element of abundance mindset. Mm. I love that. What do you like about it? I just, I think that uh, the thought of us and them that has that fight and flight wrapped up in it. And also a competitive spirit, obviously that's what it's showing. But that is the mindset that I feel like the nutrition and diet industry has really capitalized on as far as marketing goes. It's like not meat, no way, not meat, us or them. It is, this is plant-based meat, this is better. It's like a competition, um, it's, what is better than the other thing instead of, hey, we could collaborate. It'd be really awesome if plant-based meat was in these environments because it would really help the food, actual food shortage. But in these environments, actual humanely raised meat is fantastic for your microbiome and your gut lining. And if we don't have it, then we don't live as long. So just the competition and the us versus them, I see that a lot. And people put themselves into categories and it becomes their identity. Um, and then once it becomes their identity, they can't be creative outside of it. So I have a, so some clients who have been vegan their whole life, um, but their bodies in particular, not everybody's body does, but their bodies really needs to eat meat in order to live longer. They want to live to into their nineties, maybe into hundreds, but they have their identity set as a vegan. And so it's so hard for them to move on and see, I can actually eat fish. I can eat this really well-raised meat. And that's what's gonna heal my body. Um, that's what's gonna give me this thing that I want, this abundant life. But it's there's an identity that is keeping them from doing it and a competition and a, um, a morality that's involved there. 
I loved how you said guilt, shame, and fear, because mm. I think a lot of analysts today um, who are maybe raised in the profession post-1985, which sort of professionalized investing mm. with the CFA and all, they kind of think if I don't do these things, I'm not really doing the job. And they okay. get confused between the things mm -hmm. and the real goal is to make clients money from your investment decisions. So I was also thinking the either or, like I could do these things or I could kind of think this other way, but I, I was thinking about the scale as well in your situation, like the cow, the humanely raised da da da, and mm -hmm. immediately clicking into like, well, we just can't scale humanely raised blank, blank, blank. We have to put the cattle through this horrible system. I don't know if those things map up on the back end. <laughs> no, I do. I think like if you're not that, I do feel like that is a scarcity mindset of like, oh man, we don't have enough. There's not enough cows. There's not enough processing. There's not enough time. There's not enough resources. There's not enough support. There's not enough um, buy-in to do something like that. Definitely a scarcity thought process instead of thinking actually we do have enough we have excess Dwayne Reed is selling meatballs we don't need to be processing all these cows we should not be buying meatballs at Dwayne Reed <laughs> and, but instead we think oh my gosh we need it to be available at all times instead of the meatballs. <laughs> I love the balance. We were talking yesterday, Bryn and uh, Amber and I, about the balance of you go into Dwayne Reed or Walgreens to get your prescription, to get these things, to take care of the problems you created in some cases. Um, in other cases, you're getting these miracles from someplace that help you live, penicillin, you know. And then there's like a, a entire aisle of nutrition bars, which I know drives Amber absolutely bonkers because it's posed as like super healthy i have a major soapbox about nutrition bars i don't <laughs> we have an excess of nutrition bars and it really plays into the attitude of scarcity even with the marketing um the two i don't know if it's appropriate to actually name them um but you can edit it out if you is it appropriate? So. okay the two that really um, fire me up is the perfect bar. <laughs> and you look at that and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm hungry. I don't have time to cook dinner. There's not enough time. I didn't go to the grocery store. There's not enough resources. I don't know how to cook. There's not enough support. There's not enough information, but this bar is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's full of all the things that are carcinogens and cause Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and heart disease because it has all the rancid oils and um, grains that have been treated with glyphosate. So it's hundred percent not perfect. And the other one is um, this bar saves lives as a philanthropic vision to the company. You think if I am eating this granola bar, I am saving a life and we want companies to all have a philanthropic, philanthropic arm. That's fantastic. But you're not saving your own life. You're actually destroying your gut microbiome. But with all this, we keep thinking we need to make more of these products. I know so many nutritionists who are like, hey, I have a new bar that's on the market. I'm like, that's great. Why don't we just buy apples? Like we think we have to get more and more and then it becomes excess instead of the abundance that's actually available to us, particularly from mother nature, particularly from the earth. 
Um, and yeah, I see that that's, that's a piece of my soapbox on bars. I'll leave it there. It sounds like you're saying that there's abundance all around us and we have a failure to see it or experience it. That's so real. Yes. Yes. Amber, as you mentioned that you had read the piece that you and I co-wrote where you go into blueberries mm -hmm. and you mentioned that I had four takeaways or yes. insights. Is there what maybe as a last question, um, because we only have so much time that we can talk about this, of course. <laughs> <laughs> People don't appreciate my deadpan humor, so I might as well mention that otherwise I'm going to pip in minute 24. You're, but at any rate, is there one of those four to touch on maybe to highlight as a last part of this discussion? Yeah, I think, Bryn, with your question directly correlates to this fourth point that you made, Pip, that scarcity even exists when we have such a clear abundance of something. Um, we see this with food for sure, where we have such an abundance that Trader Joe's now, they're selling rambutan and gooseberries, along with the rows and rows of blueberries and strawberries. But what scarcity does is say, I don't have enough data. Um, which is something you brought up. In the nutrition world, that looks like recipes. I don't have enough recipes. I don't have enough um, different food choppers because I don't know how to chop food. And the scarcity mindset comes in where we're thinking, I'm not going to be enough. I'm not going to cook the best meal. I'm not going to know how to chop the onion. I like, there's not enough with, of talent within me. Even if the abundance is available to us, we're really all you need to do is throw an uncut zucchini and an uncut carrot and a, like a chicken leg into a pot and you can make an amazing soup. But we think I can't do this, there's not enough, even though there's so much that's available to us. And so what that does is it um, it reduces the creative, the creative process. If you think I'm not gonna do this best, I'm not gonna do it right, it keeps you from being creative. Instead of thinking, you know what, I could put some garlic and some tomatoes and some feta cheese and some sausage on a baking sheet, throw in the oven for 20 minutes while I scroll on Instagram, and I'm gonna have the best dinner ever. Instead of being like, I need to look through these 800 recipes on this um, vegetarian website because I need to find the perfect recipe to cook for myself every night, and then give up and just order Thai food. Amber, can you just tell Bryn about the unhealthy burrito that was billed as a healthy burrito? It, like, I would have totally fallen for this. Totally <laughs> fallen for it. Yeah, so this was a hotel breakfast menu and on it was like French toast and sausage and steak and eggs and corned beef hash and eggs. And then they had the healthy wrap. <laughs> Which you come up and I saw multiple people order the healthy wrap and a diet Coke, it was classic. And what the, the healthy wrap consisted of was a whole wheat tortilla, egg whites, um, tomatoes, and I think guacamole. Cucumbers. Think, cucumbers, yes. Cucumbers, tomatoes, egg whites, on a whole weight wrap with some guacamole. I'm like, score a touchdown. I was like, wait, that's not healthy. Wait, that's not healthy. So this is what the nutrition industry has done to us over the past 100 years is forgotten that plants have anti-nutrients and um, animal food has a lot of um, nutrients that our bodies need. For instance, egg yolks have choline, which are necessary for balancing our hormones. So the whole egg white craze, you might as well eat iceberg lettuce because you're not getting 
the actual nutrients that you need. So that's the first thing. You should have the whole egg. Second, um, if your microbiome and your gut lining is um, permeable, this is where you get autoimmune disease. This is where you get IBS. If your gut is busted, you could say, then the plant poisons that are in every plant can bother your microbiome. And those plant poisons are called lectins, in particular in things like whole wheat, mm. tomatoes, and cucumbers. It's in, the, it's in the skin and in the seeds of these plants. And if you have a healthy microbiome, then you're fine. You can handle it. But because most people are eating Cheetos and Dr. Dr. Pepper, then once they eat this healthy wrap, these plant anti-nutrients are then further bothering their microbiome. So really, if you wanted to have a healthy wrap, it should be... Um... <laughs> Let me guess. What? Wrap, Cheetos, <laughs> guacamole, and the Diet Coke. That is what most people would order. <laughs> But the avocados are actually the best thing on that wrap, which a lot of people will be like, oh gosh, I can only have like a half an avocado a day. It's too much fat. Where actually your cells run best on fat and your cell membranes are made of fat and your neurons are coated. Your myelin sheath of your neurons is coated with fat. And so if you're not eating fat, your brain's not operating well, your hormones can't communicate to your cells. So mm -hmm. two giant avocados and some eggs, maybe not two, two giant, maybe two halves of the avocado and two eggs with the yolk. Um, that's awesome. Sprinkle it with sea salt and pepper. That'd be the most amazing thing. What if you like wrap the egg in the avocado? I'm imagining this. Mm. <laughs> that seems a little bit messy. We'd have to figure, uh, figure out a better wrap. Uh, your comment on there being just so much information because there's so much nutrition information out there and that you get decision fatigue and you get confused because things are contradicting themselves. Um, because every situation is unique. Every human's body is unique. And so you can't put the same parameters on every human's eating pattern. I'm sure in the same way as you can't put um, the same parameters on every investment strategy, we have to be able to have the creativity and the open mind to be able to look at every individual situation and say, what does this need? What do we need? So I hope we gave you some literal food for thought as we spend these short days and dark nights in perhaps more introspective ways. It's a really interesting time to consider which worldviews and ways of working and being might help us more than we realize. And I would put an abundance mindset up as a candidate. We'll be back in 2022. Here's to wishing you a happy, abundant new year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>